Well, we're back together. Um, as I talked about before, we're, we're heading back into Romans. And uh, those of you that have been with us from March to now will know that we've done this a little different. And uh, for myself personally, this has been uh, probably the most life-changing passage that I have been able to teach and study. Um, and I'm hoping it has been for you. I know that I shared that this was a very pivotal thing for Martin Luther, was him studying and looking at this passage, and there are different scriptures I know that, that really hit him. But I want you to see what he says about the book of Romans. He said, this letter to the Romans is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. I think he's pretty emphatic about this book. And I know that stories that I've heard about him, is it really changed some of his almost legalistic way that he looked at um, his Christian life. That he started to see the grace of the gospel. He started to see uh, that he didn't, what he did, he didn't have to punish himself daily for his sinfulness, that he would even whip himself because he felt that was the righteous thing to do. But then he began to see that God's grace was all through this. As we started back in March, we we're doing this kind of backwards. We started in chapter 12 and then went to 12 to 16, then we went 8 to 11, and now we're back, and we're starting with 1 to 7. It's kind of like watching a movie for the second time. When we watch a movie for the second time, we know what the ending looks like. But as I watch it the second time, I begin to see little clues that I didn't see the first time through. I see foreshadowing. I see Easter eggs that are hidden in it. I hear important dialogue that I didn't hear the first time. And it gives me a better idea of where the story is going. And that's kind of what we've been doing with Romans, is we've given you that insight into the end of it to see what the purpose of Romans was. So that as you go back, you begin to see what Paul's intention was when he started it. And we can get off uh, if we don't know, we can, we can begin to see things uh, skewed towards our own feelings and emotions when we started off, which is probably what these, the Roman church did. One of the, the things that, that we talked about, and we really got this idea from Scott McKnight, but he talked about this, and he said, if we begin reading Romans in chapter 12, we will see the purpose or aim of Romans, which is what? I call it lived theology. 
an expression I have swiped and adjusted for the historian's task from Charles Marsh at UVA. His point is that we can do theology from Christians and others by examining behaviors, habits, or practices. From these, we can infer and observe lived theology. What a crazy statement. He's actually saying that if you want to study theology, which is the study of God, you just have to watch Christians. You just have to watch their behavior, their habits, and their practices. How frightening is that? To have a class from theological school or seminary come into our midst and say, this year we are studying the forge so we can understand God better. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying, Paul's trying to let us see what this lived theology is by watching Christians. That he wants their lives to be that testimony of the gospel. And in this book, he's trying to realign these followers of Jesus in the church. And he's seen division, and we've talked about these different divisions between Jewish Christians and Roman Gentile Christians. The challenges of this community where they were seeing divides was around law and grace. Who has most favor with God? Ambition to the Gentiles? Inclusion or exclusion? The weak and the strong in faith? As well, it addressed some of the people that were doubting if Jesus was even the Messiah. And that the people of the church were disobedient to the will of God. As we started in Romans 12, we've gone back to this, this one passage a number of times. In Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Our series is called, was, is called Love, Justice, Lordship. And you can see it in this passage. You can see God's mercy being called to personal sacrifice, that love that we see. The renewing of our mind as justice, and the discerning of God's will and us following Christ as Lord. You can watch us. Can you imagine you can watch us learn this stuff? And then he ends his, uh, this letter with this passage. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, 
but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to faith and obedience. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. He kind of reiterates what he begins with. This is close to his beginning statement in 1 to 7. Now we've, uh, I want you to see a picture here because I want you to engage with something that was very fascinating to, for me. This is a picture uh, that, and I've added different pictures because I, I didn't know some of them, but Mike Frost, a missional author and speaker, he posted this on his Facebook page. And all he said were, Christians were not all the same. What you have here is you've got Martin Luther. You've got Rob Bell. Rob Bell, who uh, wrote about hell in a different perspective and was called a heretic. Justin Bieber. Martin Luther King. Mark Wahlberg. Some of you have seen him in movies. Nadia Bowles-Weber, who is a, a, a priest, and uh, she's written uh, a book called Pastrix. I'm trying to remember the other one's called, but she's very edgy. And she ministers to a community who are struggling with addiction, but she's got her tats. You've got Desmond Tutu, Bishop Desmond Tutu, and Lamont, which is one of my favorite authors but not always appreciated by Christians. Carrie Underwood, country singer, winner on the American Idol, Mother Teresa, Bono from the band U2, John Wesley, Pope Francis, Dolly Parton, Joel Osteen, and Queen Elizabeth. As he posted this, it was fascinating to hear how people responded to it. Which person do you think they had the most, the hardest time with? Any thoughts? Bono? They had the hardest time with Joel Olstein, a preacher who, who's got a huge church. TV ministry, and his whole thing is about prosperity, positiveness. And they have the hardest time with that guy. But these are all people that have said they're Christians or they're God followers. And yet, I would say that a lot of us have a lot of opinions. I could add some other names to it that were probably more controversial. Caitlyn Jenner, Donald Trump. You begin to feel some of the stuff that some of these Romans were feeling. Is how do you call yourself a Christian if you don't do the right things? And I've heard people complain about many of these within the Christian community that I live in. 
I remember someone telling me how much they despised Bono from U2. And I told them how much I loved him. He journeys with Christ in ways that many of us wouldn't understand. Smokes, drinks, swears, but he has a heart for Christ. What does it look like for us? Listen to this quote from Anne Lamott. She's the one up there. I love this. We know we've made God in our own image when it turns out he hates all the same people we hate. That's always fascinating to me when I read people's comments on social media. I always want to ask them, do you think that God feels the same way about those people that you do? Especially when I add in the name Jesus. How would Jesus respond to all those people? The, t- the subtitle of our series is, and I started to do just a little picture, I don't know if I'm going to use it as a, but our title is called, Don't Be So Smug. This is <clears throat> kind of the look that sometimes is perceived that we are like as Christians. It's still called love, justice, and lordship, but the challenge here is don't be so smug. I want to ask April to come up and just uh, read the first seven verses in Romans for me. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I wanted April, I wanted a female voice to read that. Because this letter, we, we, if we remember, was actually delivered by a woman, Phoebe. You see it in the end of the book. And I want you to hear what they would have heard, possibly that she read it to them. And that might have been difficult for some people right away. I know there's still some churches today that would be upset if a woman read that. That's, they want to write it off. But as we look at this passage, and I want to start with that first verse, is that Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Speaking of smug, <laughs> can that sound smug? Can that sound like, I don't know if you've ever stood and introduced yourself and then said, 
This is my credentials. Seems a bit pretentious. But what you don't see here is the, the thing that I thought was important. Paul doesn't say, hi, I'm from Tarsus. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm, I'm highly educated. He doesn't tell you his successes in life. He doesn't tell you how many people he's led to Christ. He says, a servant of Christ Jesus. Servant meant, he, that word could be used as slave, but he says Christ Jesus. He's emphasizing something here of saying, this is the Messiah, the anointed one. He wants them to remember that because, as you see in the book, some of them don't know if he's it. And Paul says, I serve the Messiah. He says, I'm called. I'm called by God to be an apostle, an apostle who is sent out. That he was called by God and sent out by God. And he was set apart the way that the priests were set apart for the gospel of God. He wants it clear that this is why he came and these are his credentials. Michael Byrd makes this statement, and I didn't put it in here, but it says, ironically, the former Pharisee who glor gloried in his set-apartness from sinners, is now set apart as God's messenger to the quintessential sinners, the Gentiles. Paul's wanting to see this so differently and what some of them are doing. And this church in Rome, where he wanted to see the Roman church be almost a staging ground for himself, and for other ministries to go into the rest of the world. That he was hoping that this would be the place that would launch others out towards Spain and into the rest of Europe. And he's wanting, like I said earlier, to realign them. And so what he does right away is he says the gospel of God, and then he jumps into it. In verse 2 to 4, the gospel he promised for beforehand through his prophets in the old scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He sums up the gospel pretty clearly right there. That's what he sees as the gospel. It's regarding God's son, who was born, who came into this earthly life in humility, who was part of the line of David that you see in prophecy. And he said, this is through prophets of old scripture. This is not new. This is what we were waiting for. That he became flesh. He was appointed. He was appointed the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness 
And by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, our Lord. Sometimes we need to hear that on a daily basis to remember what it is that we are called to as his people, as followers, that we would be able to de declare it like Paul does in boldness. This is how he starts his letter. It's about the gospel. It's about who Jesus Christ is. Martin Luther says this. He says, the gospel is a story about Christ, God's and David's son, who died and was raised and established as Lord. This is the gospel in a nutshell. I'm not sure we could always do that ourselves. That we understand gospel this way. Not just about getting people saved. We can't even do that. Jesus Christ is that. That he makes it about Christ. Then he goes into to verse 5. And he says these words. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. <clears throat> Paul says, he along with others, and as disciples, we're included in that. But he said, we're called and received, they received God's grace and favor to proclaim this gospel. Paul emphasizes, and you see it at the end of the, the book, and you see it, or the, the end of the letter, and you see it here. He keeps emphasizing the Gentiles. And you're going to see why, because there's such a division around this, that there's a belief that the Gentiles, the way the Jewish people had seen them, is that they're not the same as us. They don't obey the law like we do. They're much more sinful than we are. He's challenging that smugness to say, it's the Gentiles that we're called to. And this is where they missed it. They missed that this was in their scriptures. The prophets had said, this was what we're going to be called to. We are going to be called to the Gentiles. And yet, the church of that time still couldn't get over the fact that the Gentiles didn't do all the things that the Jewish Christians did. That they came through this understanding that if they obey the law, they have favor with God. But Jesus Christ, he changed a lot of that. He was able to be the fulfillment of law. That choosing Christ, following Christ, Understanding this gospel should change how we respond to the world around us. And it's fascinating. I gave you pictures of Christians. People that say they're Christians. And we can find ourselves fighting amongst ourselves of why they're not righteous. 
why they're not a part of us. And it's interesting because all of those people that I showed you, I've had people say they're not a part of us. Even a Mother Teresa. Do you know why? Because she's Catholic. And yet, her testimony to an entire country of India surpassed any churches at the time. And they understood God's love. And they knew that that's what she represented. But we want to be able to point fingers and be able to say, it can't be that person. I really wrestle with putting Caitlyn Jenner up there. But when you hear her testimony, this is where they stand. And yet, it doesn't make sense to me. And we want to decide who's in and who's out. And it says here that it's obedience by faith. I love that line. And it's not being justified, just justified by faith, but it's also being obedient by faith. That we're called to walk this out in obedience. Not just say I'm saved, not just say I'm clean, but also to in obedience to walk it out and do what Paul's doing here. Declaring the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. To be that living theology. Let's just look at the last two verses here. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That you're actually in this community. You're in it. To all in Rome who are loved by God. That includes all the Gentiles. And called to be his holy people. And then he speaks this word, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus. These are the people that the church here was struggling with. Those people in Rome that were just not understanding what it means to be righteous. And Paul comes along and speaks the words of love over them and that sense of being called to be his holy people. And then speaks grace and peace. Think about it. If we're being studied to understand who God is, is this what people see? I just want to read something from Michael Bird from his commentary. He says, ultimately, Paul wants to make sure that he and the Roman Gentile Christians are seen off the same sheet of gospel music. Since Paul cannot be in Rome in person, he wants to embed the gospel in their community, to defend himself against any rumors of antinomianism, which is anti-law, or anti-Israelite sentiment, and to prevent a diverse, potentially fractious Christian community from fragmenting along ethnic lines of Jew versus Gentile. In other words, Paul wants to gospelize the Romans, that is, to conform them to the pattern of teaching that the gospel imparts. 
Paul wants to gospelize the Romans. He wants to conform them to the pattern of teaching that the of what the gospel imparts. Do we need to be gospelized? As a Christian church? Because that's what it looks like living theology is to be gospelized, to understand what the gospel is. And Paul's challenging these Romans, this Roman church, this divided church, this church that can be kind of smug and it can go both ways. There's a smugness that you can see throughout it from the Gentile Christians, who he refers to as the strong ones, which would be upsetting for the Jewish ones. And he says, they're the weak ones that don't understand this grace. He's challenging them. There's two things. Challenging them what it means to know and to live the gospel. That's what we're heading into here. This challenge of knowing and living the gospel. And then living out obedience and faith as the body of Christ. Paul really wants us to look at ourselves and say, where do we stand on this? How are we living this out? Where are we being smug? Because I've been called heretic myself. And I've been called other things as well that were positive things. But it doesn't mean that I can't continue to be transformed, that there will be a renewing of the mind. As I said, we keep going back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. That we want to walk out this obedience and faith to be those people that follow the will of God. My prayer is that you would allow yourself to be gospelized, to really embrace what it means to be those followers that are called, that are able to declare what the gospel is. That's our journey as we go into this. Let me just pray, and I'll invite Greg up. Lord, there's so much in this letter, particularly the